Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The astute FDR biographer Jeffrey Ward once reported this story, attributed to a confidential source. A man who had been a small boy in 1945, the son of an automotive executive living in the glossy Detroit suburb of Bloomfield Hills, recalled watching through the kitchen window one night that spring as his normally sedate mother and father and their nearest neighbors held hands and danced around a bonfire in the garden. His memory of that sight blurred over time, and he always assumed that his parents had been celebrating the end of the war in the Pacific that finally came late that summer. One day, he asked his mother about it. Oh no, dear, she said. We danced because Roosevelt was dead. We danced because Roosevelt was dead. In that small but telling moment in the middle of America in the middle of the 20th century, we can begin to trace the origins of our own flight from fact and reason in this, the third decade of the 21st century. American politics has been populated by an uncommon collection of angry minds. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. There was some kind of a secret government that was controlling everyone in the United States. There were an awful lot of people open to conspiracy theories. Treason and immorality always go hand in hand with communism. All the things that the hardcore of the far right didn't like is happening under Republican presidents. To understand why the right wing of American politics has descended into the darkness of the age of Trump, you have to begin at least in the 1940s, when Franklin Roosevelt went to Yalta for his final wartime conference with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. Stalin takes his place at the conference, and in the deliberations, the chairman is President Roosevelt. On around the circle of statecraft, Winston Churchill and cigars. There, the president was forced by circumstance to ratify a Soviet sphere of influence. He did so because the Red Army occupied so much of Eastern Europe, and, as Stalin once remarked, an occupying force imposes its political will. Roosevelt believed he would have world enough in time to negotiate further with Stalin and ameliorate the Soviet influence behind what Churchill would later call the Iron Curtain. But FDR had neither world enough nor time enough. The president died at Warm Springs, Georgia, in April of 1945. To the whole free world, the stunning news has come that Franklin Roosevelt is dead. Death in the hour of victory, like President Lincoln before him. The conservative legend about Yalta was that Roosevelt had sold us out to the Soviets, and the presence there of Alger Hiss who would later be shown to have been a Russian agent, cemented the right's view of the summit as a great betrayal that showed the Democratic Party to be on the side 
of the communists. Yalta becomes the great symbol of selling out to the communists. The Republican right just seizes on Yalta that, that FDR secretly sold out to the communists. And the linkage, the key link, is that Alger Hiss, a State Department official who was at Yalta, was secretly spying for the communists. And the man who exposes that is Congressman Richard Nixon. This is the journalist, author, and historian, Evan Thomas. And one of the key cultural moments comes when Nixon is interrogating Hiss, and Hiss is looking down his nose at Nixon and says, uh, your law school, I believe, was Whittier. Mine was Harvard. This drives Nixon crazy, and he can't wait to show that this Harvard man who is putting him down as a graduate of a lowly college, actually Nixon graduated from Duke Law School, Whittier College, but Duke Law School, the snob who's putting him down, this Harvard man who's putting him down, is a communist spy. And Nixon does it. He pins on, on his that he is a communist. He, he really proves it. And it's a huge cultural moment. From this episode sprung a mighty conspiracy that reached beyond partisanship. In the closing weeks of 1954, during a long drive down the Hudson Valley to New York City, the conversation among the four passengers in the car, all friends, turned, as it usually did, to politics. One of their number, Robert Welch, a conservative candy manufacturer based in Massachusetts. One of his most popular products, the Caramel Sugar Daddy. Welch believed and told his friends that President Eisenhower was to blame for the Republicans' loss of both the House and the Senate in the November 1954 midterm elections. Welch said the president had engaged in a double-crossing of his own party, refusing to campaign for candidates after promising to do so. The Congress had been, quote, moved a few notches further left by the defeat of several conservatives, he said, adding that this effect was probably intentional on Eisenhower's part. His friends expressed surprise, and Welch recalled that he then took the occasion to explain how Eisenhower, lifetime soldier, conqueror of Hitler, former Supreme Commander of NATO, and now President of the United States, was an agent of a communist conspiracy to undermine and take over America. With a rising worry about domestic subversion in recent years, Welch said, there had been some hope that the country was coming to understand the threat from Moscow. Welch later wrote, the American people had begun to wake up to the extent of communist infiltration into our government and into every segment of our public life. People come into my office, how do you know that these lines aren't tapped? I say, we don't. How do you know one of those girls down there is not a communist plant? I said, we don't. Eisenhower, Welch claimed, had changed all that. He wrote, The sad truth is that this tyranny was actually saved in this period of great vulnerability by just one thing. The inauguration on January 20th, 1953 of Dwight David Eisenhower as President of the United States. Subtly, cleverly, always proclaiming otherwise and finding specious excuses for what were really pro-communist actions. These communist influences made Eisenhower put the whole diplomatic power, economic power, and recognized leadership of this country to work on the side of Russia and the communists in connection with every problem and trouble spot in their empire. And some of them undoubtedly do believe that communism is the wave of the future. We believe instead 
that the whole world is now tired of so much strife and bestiality, treason and immorality, cruelty and confusion, blasphemy and destructiveness, bitterness and fear, doubt and despair that always go hand in hand with communism. According to Welch, Eisenhower was guilty of a very sinister and hated word, treason. And he wasn't a lonely subversive or a solitary dupe. There were, Welch believed, plenty of others aside from Ike. One was Franklin Roosevelt, who, Welch wrote, had been swept along and used by the communist forces, avid for the glory and the power of being a wartime president and of tossing around millions of men and billions of dollars with a nod of his head. Another was the former Army Chief of Staff and Truman Secretary of Defense and of State, George Marshall, whom Welch said was a conscious, deliberate, dedicated agent of the Soviet conspiracy. To Welch, John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower Secretary of State, was yet another communist agent. There was no evidence for such fevered assertions. Where the naked eye and the rational brain saw Eisenhower as a patriot seeking to govern in a nuclear age, Welch, his vision and perception warped by a fear of communism, detected treason. Four years after his ride along the Hudson at a meeting in Indianapolis, Welch founded the John Birch Society. Named in honor of a soldier killed by Chinese communists, the society believed itself to be engaged in an end-time struggle between good and evil. Of Birch, Welch wrote, With his death and in his death the battle lines were drawn in a struggle from which either communism or Christian-style civilization must emerge with one completely triumphant and the other completely destroyed. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the John Birch Society? An adequate answer to that question requires two full days. The John Birch Society was founded in Indianapolis on December 9, 1958. It was chartered under the general laws of Massachusetts as a non-profit educational organization. During these seven years, we have sought to bring into the John Birch Society only men and women of good character, humane consciences, and religious ideals. The Birchers represented a persistent type of political belief. In a landmark essay published in October 1964 when Barry Goldwater was running against Lyndon Johnson, the Columbia historian Richard J. Hofstetter delineated what he called the paranoid style in American politics. Hofstetter wrote, The modern right wing feels dispossessed. America has been largely taken away from them and their kind, though they are determined to try to repossess it and to prevent the final destructive act of subversion. The old American virtues have already been eaten away by cosmopolitans and intellectuals. The old competitive capitalism has been gradually undermined by socialistic and communistic schemers. The old national security and independence have been destroyed by treasonous plots, having as their most powerful agents not merely outsiders and foreigners as of old, but major statesmen who are at the very centers of American power. Their predecessors had discovered conspiracies. The modern radical right finds conspiracy to be betrayal from on high. The paranoid spokesman sees the fate of conspiracy in apocalyptic terms. He traffics in the birth and death of whole worlds, 
whole political orders, whole systems of human values. He is always manning the barricades of civilization. He constantly lives at a turning point. This is Sean Willents, a Princeton University professor and American historian. Richard Hofstadter's paranoid style in American politics begins with the proposition that although American politics is not seen the kind of classic forms of class conflict to the extent that we see it in the old world in Europe, nevertheless, American politics has been populated by an uncommon collection of angry minds. You know, we had a civil war, <laughs> among other things, over slavery. But even apart from that, America has been a very turbulent and angry place. Now, one manifestation of its anger is a propensity for a kind of thinking that is highly conspiratorial, highly attuned to the idea that great systems out there are running the world that are hidden, but that have to be exposed, that are causing the country to be persecuted in effect. A decade earlier, in the spring of 1954, Hofstetter had delivered a lecture that was published in The American Scholar. It was titled, The Pseudo-Conservative Revolt. While less celebrated than his essay on the paranoid style, this piece of Hofstadter's is equally incisive. In it, he argued that the right was now animated not by a classical understanding of conservatism, a recognition of the limits of human reform and a skepticism about far-reaching public initiatives, but by a mindset that was, in its way, as expansive as the liberal hope of progress. Hofstetter called this strain pseudo-conservatism, writing, Who is the pseudo-conservative, and what does he want? It is impossible to identify him by social class, for the pseudo-conservative impulse can be found in practically all classes in society, although its power probably rests largely upon its appeal to the less educated members of the middle classes. The ideology of pseudo-conservatism can be characterized, but not defined, because the pseudo-conservative tends to be more than ordinarily incoherent about politics. The lady who, when General Eisenhower's victory over Senator Robert A. Taft for the Republican presidential nomination had finally become official in 1952, stalked out of the Hilton Hotel declaiming, this means eight more years of socialism, was probably a fairly good representative of the pseudo-conservative mentality. The restlessness, suspicion, and fear shown in various phases of the pseudo-conservative revolt give evidence of the real suffering which the pseudo-conservative experiences. He believes himself to be living in a world in which he is spied upon, plotted against, betrayed, and very likely destined for total ruin. He feels that his liberties have been arbitrarily and outrageously invaded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. 
It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. A key Hofstadter insight had to do with motivation. Politics was not a philosophical contest between competing visions of reality. It was, rather, a messy struggle that often defied easy categorization. As Hofstadter wrote, Political life is not simply an arena in which the conflicting interests of various social groups and concrete material gains are fought out. It is also an arena into which status aspirations and frustrations are, as the psychologists would say, projected. It is at this point that the issues of politics, or the pretended issues of politics, become interwoven with and dependent upon the personal problems of individuals. We have at all times two kinds of processes going on in inextricable connection with each other. Interest politics, the clash of material aims and needs among various groups and blocks, and status politics, the clash of various projective rationalizations arising from status aspirations and other personal motives. This language was made familiar in post-war America in part by Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, the hard-drinking provocateur from Wisconsin. Today we are engaged in a final all-out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity, McCarthy told the Ohio County Republican Women's Club in Wheeling, West Virginia, on Thursday, February 9, 1950. McCarthy added, How can we account for our present situation unless we believe that men high in this government are concerting to deliver us to disaster? This must be the product of a great conspiracy on a scale so immense as to dwarf any previous such venture in the history of man, a conspiracy of infamy so black that, when it is finally exposed, its principles shall be forever deserving of the maledictions of all honest men. What can be made of this unbroken series of decisions and acts contributing to the strategy of defeat? They cannot be attributed to incompetence. The laws of probability would dictate that part of the decisions would serve the country's interest. There were an awful lot of people open to conspiracy theories. This is Michael Beschloss, a historian and the author of nine books on the American presidency. For instance, that the reason the country was going bad was because our water was being fluoridated by local governments, or that there was some kind of a secret government somewhere on the East Coast that was controlling everyone in the United States, which was the view of the John Birch Society. The dominant figure of the 1950s, of course, was the two-term Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower. In 1952, he broke the two-decade-long GOP exile from the White House, and there were conservatives who looked to Ike as a deliverance from liberal evil. The battle for the presidency of the United States nears its climax, and tension grows in the rival camps. At his headquarters, Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican candidate, makes his way onto the platform to the acclaim of his supporters as the news comes in from the 48 states that he's in the lead they were to be disappointed. Eisenhower governed largely from the center, accepting the basic reality of the New Deal. 
It would be suicide, Ike said, for a political party to try to destroy Social Security. He chose California Governor Earl Warren to be Chief Justice of the United States, and Warren led a court that declared separate but equal to be unconstitutional, affirmed the rights of criminal defendants, and in 1962 ruled against sectarian prayer in public schools. This is Evan Thomas again. Conservatives would not be blamed for thinking that they were repeatedly stabbed in the back, uh, to use an expression from Germany in World War II, that they're being sold out, that they're being stabbed in the back by their own leaders. Uh, these Republicans, Eisenhower, Nixon, later Jerry Ford, sell out to the establishment. Not 100%, but enough so that the populist, the conservative revolution cannot be fulfilled. There's still a new deal. We still have alliances with Europe. There's still a welfare state. There's an expanding welfare state. We are increasingly globally involved. All the things that the hardcore of the far right didn't like is happening under Republican presidents. These decisions, coming from a Republican president's appointee, set up decades of cultural warfare for the right. This afternoon, we're proudly announcing historic steps to protect the First Amendment right to pray in public schools. So you have the right to pray, and that's a very important and powerful right. Almost 30 years ago, when I was a young reporter for the Chattanooga Times in Tennessee, I was covering politics in rural northern Georgia, a region where Pat Buchanan did well with his populist message in 1992. At an event, I once saw an evangelical Christian activist holding a homemade sign that put what the demonstrator thought to be negative social trends on a timeline, divorce rates and crime rates among them. The key event was not, as you might expect, Roe v. Wade in 1973, but the school prayer decision in 1962. And then there is race. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Chief Justice Warren's 1954 decision in Brown and the court's follow-up enforcement opinion in 1955 gave federal sanction to the slow dismantling of Jim Crow. Eisenhower intervened in the 1957 desegregation crisis in Little Rock. The reactions to the civil rights movement included not only an active KKK, but the white citizens' councils, pro-segregation organizations that reached higher on the social and economic scale than the Klan tended to do. In her novel, Ghost Set a Watchman, Harper Lee cast Atticus Finch, the heroic lawyer of To Kill a Mockingbird, as a member of the Citizens' Council in her fictional Makeham. Atticus sat and listened as a speaker, a Mr. O'Hanlon, spewed the common views. Mr. O'Hanlon was born and bred in the South, went to school there, married a Southern lady, lived all his life there, and his main interest today was to uphold the Southern way of life, and no Supreme Court was going to tell him or anybody else what to do. That was fiction, but barely. The Citizen Council views could be discerned in a small book that prison officials had given John Lewis and his fellow inmates at Mississippi's Parchman Penitentiary 
after being arrested during the Freedom Rides in 1961. Entitled Race and Reason, it was written by Carlton Putnam, a Princeton graduate and head of Delta Airlines. He wrote, The whole matter can really be put in a nutshell. A gullible, trusting nation has been misled by various minority groups into believing that Negroes have an inborn capacity for Western civilization equal to the white race. Thus, it is not the South which is committing a moral crime against the Negro in maintaining segregation, but the North which is committing a moral crime against the South in forcing integration. Let me restate the situation. We have in the North a great body of public opinion hypnotized by the belief that all the Negro's limitations are environmental. That the only reason he does not appear to be the white man's equal in every respect is because the white man has forced him into an inferior environment. The point is you have a completely indoctrinated society in the North. On that indoctrination, the integration movement rests. It gives it all the sanctions of a moral crusade. It makes it shine like the Holy Grail. And what's the South doing about it? Just talking almost exclusively about states' rights. During the crisis over integration at the University of Mississippi in the fall of 1962, Robert Kennedy told Arthur Schlesinger that Governor Ross Barnett's performance and the public support of the governor's defiance had given the Attorney General a better sense of how Adolf Hitler had come to power. RFK told Schlesinger, Everyone in Mississippi is accepting what that fellow is doing. There are no protests anywhere, from the bar, or from the professional men, or from the professors. I wouldn't have believed it. The White South needed an alternative reality to uphold a segregated order. The lie of the inferiority of black people provided one. Heading into the 1964 campaign then, and the upheavals of the rest of the decade, conservatives were in flight from fact, blaming imaginary treacheries from Yalta to Eisenhower, and asserted a false superiority over people of color, all in the name of power. Next, on Fate of Fact. It should have been a golden age of conservatism. Nixon, Ford, Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush. But these men governed in unexpected ways, feeding a growing disenchantment on the right. Thank you for listening to Fate of Fact, a presentation of Shining City Audio at John Meacham and C-13 Original Studio. Created and executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Fate of Fact was written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Chris Basil. Additional production, engineering, and research support by Paige Heimson, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Ian Mont. Our theme song is Remember Me as a Time of Day by Explosions in the Sky. Artwork by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and PR support by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.